You may be seated. I invite you to find a Bible for our Bible readings this morning. On behalf of the Girl Scouts, Aubrey Perryman will bring a reading from 1 Corinthians. And on behalf of the Boy Scouts, Luke Haybrock will bring a re- reading from the Gospel of Matthew. If I speak in the tongues of mortals and of angels, but I do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have a prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and of knowledge, and if I have faith so as to remove mountains, but but do not have love, then I am nothing. If I give away all of my possessions, and if I hand over my body so that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It, do, it does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Matthew twenty-two thirty-four through 40. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? He said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment, and his second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. This is the word of God. We are this morning continuing in our sermon series entitled, Love Is. Today's part two, as we look at that topic, Love Is. Love is definitely an overused word in our culture. And because it's overused, uh, people can use that word to mean a, a host of different things. We can love our favorite food, love our sports team, love our spouse, love God. You see how overused that word love is. And I'm not sure our culture understands at least the way we Christians speak of love. Everybody has their own definition of love and everybody can paint their own picture of love. But in the Jewish Old Testament and the Christian New Testament and in the riches of Christian tradition, we have been very specific as to what we mean by love. Last week we looked at the first of the two greatest commandments where Jesus said you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. You hear the word shall there. Love is not something we feel. Love is something we do in the Christian tradition. It's not a passive act. It's a very, very, it's a very, very proactive act. You know, I hear the phrase, and I'm sure I've used the phrase, at least in my younger years, 
where I and others say they have fallen in love, or they're falling in love, or they have fallen in love. That's an interesting phrase from a Christian perspective, and it is a very modern phrase. I don't know about you, but every time I've ever fallen, I've been hurt. So falling in love is not something we're after. Falling makes it sound so passive, as if we don't have anything to do with a love, being in a love relationship with someone else. Last week, we, we reasserted the Christian position that love is something we do, not primarily something we feel. Love is an act of the will. It's a decision. It's not an emotion. Last week, we defined love because people usually fail to define love. We define love as seeking the other's highest good or greatest welfare. We seek the other's highest good or greatest welfare, but as Christ followers, we have to allow God to define what greatest good is what highest welfare is. In our culture, we all have our own definitions as to what my greatest good is, what your greatest good is. And particularly in a culture that loves pleasure-seeking above almost all else, we need to allow God to define our greatest good and our greatest welfare. So last week, we also focused on the first of these two commandments that Jesus offered. Where Jesus said, you shall love, you shall, hear the word shall, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And we talked about what it looks like to love God with all that you are and all that you have. And we determined that it looks like, it looks like knowing God. It looks like desiring God above all else. It looks like putting God first in our lives. We talked about that last week. And we ended with saying that it certainly looks like obeying God. That's what loving God looks like. And when we talk about obeying God, that begins a journey to the second of these commandments. You noticed in the text that teacher of the law, that religious authority, asked Jesus what was the greatest commandment. That teacher of the law asked Jesus for one commandment. You notice our Lord responded by giving him two commandments. Jesus said, you should love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, and mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. For Jesus, you cannot divorce those. For Jesus, you cannot separate those. For Jesus, there are two sides of only one coin. Cyril of Alexandria, an early church father, preached on this text in the 5th century. And he said, For to love God with the whole heart is the cause of every good. The first commandment prepares the way for the second and is in turn established by the second. So they're connected. We love God by loving our neighbor. That's why Jesus could not help himself but add a second commandment to the first. And he said, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So the first question before us is, is who is our neighbor? Well, we know that our neighbor's not just those people in our neighborhood. Because that probably means they're a lot like us. 
We know that the New Testament has a different definition for neighbor. You may recall that in Luke chapter 10, there you have an account of Jesus giving the greatest of the commandments. And again, it was a teacher of the law who asked what the greatest commandment is. And Jesus responded like he does here. And he concludes with, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So that teacher of the law, that lawyer, looked for a loophole and said, well, who, who? is my neighbor. We need to be able to define who our neighbor is. It's not just someone in our neighborhood. I owe my definition for neighbor to a, a famous preacher of an earlier generation, Haddon Robinson, who was with Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary for years. Gordon Conwell, when he preached on the Good Samaritan, he uses that as an example of who our neighbor is, because that's the story that Jesus gave to illustrate who our neighbor is. So Haddon Robinson said, that our neighbor is not just someone in our neighborhood, but our neighbor is anyone that is in need whose need we can help to meet. So those are our neighbors. What does it mean to love our neighbor? What does it look like to love our neighbor? God will send people into our lives that are in need. Certainly love our neighbor looks like being kind to them. As Christians, we believe in living our life doing extravagant, radical, random, unconditional acts of kindness to the people we meet. So to love our neighbor means to be kind to them. Certainly to love our neighbor means to serve them. Jesus is our model of being a servant. Jesus showed us the picture of being a servant when he was washing the feet of his disciples there in the upper room on Holy Thursday of Holy Week. And Jesus made sure they understood that the way they would wash He, Jesus' feet, would be by washing the feet of each other. Jesus makes it clear that loving our neighbor, finding that person who is in need, and helping to meet that need, we are simply following what we have come to call the golden rule. Jesus preached that also. It occurs in the Sermon on the Mount. The golden rule certainly was not unique to Jesus, but Jesus commended it. The golden rule, we should treat others as we want to be treated. And I think we know how we want to be treated, so we need to ask ourselves, how do we want to be treated? That's the way we treat others. You, you heard Aubrey a few moments ago read that great hymn to love. This recorded in 1 Corinthians 13. We hear it frequently at weddings. Sometimes we hear it at funerals. A deceased life somehow exemplified that hymn to love. You know the words. You know how Paul paints the picture of love. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. We know that text well, I suspect. Let me offer a different way of looking at that text. Let me offer you a very challenging, convicting way to look at that, that text. It's certainly a challenging, convicting way for me to look at this text. And I try to use this text occasionally as I try to examine my own life. 
You may want to look at that text sometimes. And everywhere you find the word love, just insert your name and see how it reads. Jeff is patient. Love is kind. Jeff is kind. Jeff is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. Jeff does not insist on his own way. Jeff is not irritable or resentful. Jeff does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Jeff bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Jeff perseveres. Don't ask my wife how I do with this one. But I encourage you to think along those terms. It's good for the Spirit to challenge us. It's good for the Spirit to convict us. I think when Paul penned these words, he was thinking about the greatest illustration of love that we know, and that's Jesus Christ on the cross. Jesus had no warm, fuzzy feelings when he was there on the cross, but he was doing what was best for the other. He was dying for you. He was dying for me. So how do you want to be treated? I'm sure that you want people to be patient with you and kind to you and not arrogant with you, not rude toward you, not irritable, not resentful. That may be what it looks like to love your neighbors, those people that God sends into your life. You want the people, I know I want the people in my life to seek my highest good as God defines my highest good. I don't want people to drag me down. I don't want people in my life to pull me away from what God wants me to become. I don't want people in my life just to do what I want them to do or say what I want them to say. I want them to do what I need to be done. I want them to say what needs to be said to me. You notice in the text I've been reading, they all show a connection between love and truth. You can't deal with love without dealing with truth. You heard that in both of the texts from 1 Corinthians and from uh, the Gospel of Matthew. There is a connection between love and truth, and God gets to define truth. Just like God gets to define love, just like God gets to define the boundaries in life. God gets to define relational boundaries. God gets to define marriage. God gets to define what truth is. And for love to be God's kind of love, we have to allow God to make those definitions. The Bible certainly says that God is love. Now, in our contemporary culture, and we've seen this for about 150 years now, in our contemporary culture, people read that verse, they know that verse, God is love, but sometimes they turn it around and they think it means the same thing. Love is God. And that's why in our culture today, and it's been this way for several generations now, we can just about rationalize any behavior if we define it as love. I know we've all seen examples of families almost being destroyed because someone in that family sought love in a certain way, outside the boundaries that God has provided for us. So there is a connection between, between love and truth. It is not the same thing to say that God is love, therefore love is God. You know, the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter uh, wrote something that's fairly famous. Peter said, love covers a multitude of sins. 
Now, most of our history, we thought that meant that if you love people, they'll, they'll cut you some leeway. They'll cut you some grace. And, and love covers a multitude of sins. They will allow for... They will allow for a lot of things in your life if they know that you love them. In recent years, we've begun to hear that a little differently. When Peter says love covers a multitude of sins, it seems like it certainly does in our culture. Once we define something using our definition, our cultural definition, the definition we receive from Hollywood or, or Madison Avenue or social media regarding what love is, then we can use that definition of love to cover a multitude of sins. So there is a connection between truth and love. We Christ followers know that. We've known this for 2,000 years. We can't just term whatever we want to term as love. So we need to be a people of love. We need to be a people of truth. We need to be gentle and kind always when we share truth with other people. We don't have to bleed our truth all over each other. That's not the way to do it. As Peter also says in another place, we need to be gentle as we share with others that hope that we have in Jesus Christ. We need to know how to live truthfully with people. Like many of you in the room, like several of you in the room, I'm a Rotarian. I've been a Rotarian for quite a while in a couple different appointments, and I I'm really very supportive of Rotary International. One of the reasons I'm very supportive of Rotary International is their, their motto, service above self. That helps me live my Christian life. Service above self. And I'm so grateful for all the good that Rotary International accomplishes in the world. At the end of every Rotary meeting, I think, internationally, we recite the Rotary four-way test. You may not know the Rotary four-way test, and you certainly don't have to be Rotarian to live by it. But at the end of every one of our meetings, we recite the four-way test, which says, of the things we think, say, or do, is it the truth? Is it fair to all concerned? Will it build goodwill and better friendships? And will it be beneficial to all concerned? We need to know how to be in relationship with each other. We need to know how to share truth with each other. We are never more godly than, we are, than when we are loving others the way that God directs us and inspires us to love others. As I think about this topic of love, and I call my own life, my own Christian walk in, into accountability, I'm reminded of a quotation that has challenged me for decades. It's a quotation that comes from that great Roman Catholic social worker, Dorothy Day. Uh, Dorothy Day um, was a great, great Christian leader of an earlier generation. Dorothy, Dorothy Day one time famously said, I only love God as much as I love the person I love the least. We're to love God with all that we are, all that we have. And the way we do that, the way we display that is by loving our neighbor as ourselves. Would you pray with me? God, for the gift of these moments that we've shared, we give you thanks. For the ways that your Holy Spirit inspires us, we give you thanks. 
for the ways that you challenge us and convict us. We're grateful for that too, God. We pray that you will inform us and reform us and transform us by your truth. God, we thank you for your word. We especially thank you for your living word, Jesus Christ, here in our midst. I pray that each one of us, God, will have enthroned Jesus Christ at the center of our lives. May we accept Jesus Christ on his terms, not on ours. May we allow you to be king and ruler of our lives, again, on your terms, not ours. And may we find the joy of living the adventure of faith as we turn our lives over to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.